Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence, Extraordinary People Speaking Truth to Power. This podcast is developed by Friends for a Nonviolent World, FNVW, whose mission is to champion nonviolence as the foundation for effective programs and actions to promote the dignity of every living being. Violence impacts us all. Our goal here is to give voice to people who are working to use active nonviolence those who have experienced violence, and those who have committed acts of violence. Each week we'll hear stories that will deepen our understanding of violence and the principles of nonviolence. Our host today is Joanne Perry, a longtime activist and lifelong pacifist. Welcome to Exploring the Adventures of Nonviolence podcast. We have with us today, Dr. Donna Minter, and we're very happy to have you here. Dr. Minter is a professional forensic psychologist, which Wikipedia defines as the intersection between practicing study of psychology and the justice system. Forensic psychology involves understanding fundamental legal principles, particularly in regards to expert witnesses and specific content areas of concern. In addition to this doctoral background, Dr. Minter is the founder of the nonprofit Minnesota Peacemaking Leadership Institute, which offers trauma healing workshops, which are internationally known as the Strategies for Trauma Awareness and Resilience, the STAR training. Becoming a nonprofit, a nonprofit leader, a trainer, a fundraiser, in addition to an employer and continuing to her work as a psychologist, is part of the reason we're delighted to have you here today. She's graciously agreed to share part of her journey with us. Thank you very, very much for being here. I'm really delighted to be here with you and and just talk about these issues so that we can all figure out how to do this better as we're trying to make the world a better place. Thank you for that. Please tell us a little bit about what drew you to your peacemaking. Well, I grew up in a historic peace church. My father and my brothers were conscientious objectors. So out of the religious tradition I grew out of, that was very much at the heart of what that faith walk was about. Throughout my lifetime, I've looked for ways to bring that to life, both in volunteer work as well as in my professional work. So that's where it all started, I guess. Did you have a moment in your early life where these things came together and where you realized this was the path you wanted to follow? Or is it just kind of a gradual taking one step on this path so that the journey kept coming out in front of you? Both and, I would say. What I remember as a child, my father was a family physician, very committed to community and family and the church, bringing what he believed into the work that he did. And I remember talking with him one time about his work as a physician with families in our community. He told me, he said, you know what, Donna, even though I'm a physician, 80% of my time is spent really listening to people. And I find that when I really listen to people, oftentimes the answers emerge. I think that was one of the things that made me go, well, rather than moving in the track of being a physician, I'm going to be a psychologist because a psychologist is someone who, if they're doing their job well, listens well and helps other people find answers for themselves to move along their path. 
And then I think because I've always been committed from an early age, the idea of peacemaking and nonviolence, again, because of my background in historic peace church, I was always trying to find a way to meld the idea of being in the helping professions, and in my case, that's um, being a psychologist, and peacemaking work. And then over time, it just kind of it fell into place. I, opportunities would come along, and that's, that's what happened for me as I discovered the STAR training and saw what it had to offer people. It sounds like a lovely path. I'm kind of curious, did you trip over violence on this path? Was some of your exposure to violence, or were you able to navigate nonviolence without the harsher, more brutal exposure? I believe we can look around us and see uh, trauma and violence everywhere. One of the earliest memories I have of seeing violence in our communities was um, when I was 10 years old, my family moved from northern Indiana to just outside of Bloomfield, New Mexico, where my father was a physician on a, a mission hospital, school, hospital, and church compound. So he was the only doctor at this facility. It was right off the Navajo Indian Reservation. He used to take me on house calls, and we would not, he would not only see patients in the hospital, but we used to go out to Hogan's and meet patients there. As a 10, 11-year-old, I remember seeing the kind of poverty that these, you know, Navajo Indians what was a part of their life. Certainly some of the way they lived was the traditions that their foremothers and fathers had lived, but there was also very clearly I saw even as a, you know, a, a youngster just having my eyes open to this is a really different life. <laughs> not only because of just the Native American traditions, but now as I look back on really the historical trauma and violence that resulted as a result of the violence in this country towards Native Americans. After my junior year in high school and then my senior year in high school, I volunteered for a month at a street mission in San Francisco, uh, the Lifeline Mission it was called. And that was a time when... My exposure there, and I, you know, I was 17 years old, so I finally had the, the cognitive or mental functioning to be able to kind of go, oh my goodness, this really is a different kind of life than what I've lived as a white child <laughs> of privilege. In retrospect, I realized that most of the people at this street mission were gay men. And looking back on that over the years, when I've thought about that, I actually I had a very good experience there. Um, got to know people that were just so different than me and had big hearts. And then as I've gotten older, realizing, oh my goodness, these are people that have experienced tremendous violence and trauma in their lives. And so over time, I've had, I've had many experiences like that where, you know, I've chosen to step into places, uh, into situations where I wanted to be a service 100% of that time, I've also learned very, very much from the people that I, that I worked with. So I think it's been a combination of things that have led me to where I am today. I find it fascinating that you touched on poverty, even though you didn't mention poverty specifically as a form of violence. It is one aspect of violence. Our culture, for one, glosses over and pretend doesn't exist. Yet you saw it very clearly as a small child. Thank you for mentioning it. 
This is a podcast that focuses on the ideas of pacifism and also the ideas and ideals of active nonviolence, which for most of us is the same thing, but not for everybody. And I'm kind of curious about your take and where you would fit the more philosophical ideals of pacifism into the peacemaking work that you're currently doing, your STAR training work. Well, I would put myself on that spectrum if we want to talk about the pacifism to active nonviolence. I would put myself on the more active nonviolence. There are things all of us can do to make a difference within our spheres of influence. And it's a different comfort levels for different people, but there are all things that we can do to build peace within our own spheres of influence. In my work, it's really important for people to understand what is it that happens in our brains and our bodies when violence happens. Because anytime violence happens, it creates trauma. It creates psychological trauma, sometimes physical trauma, But anytime violence happens, it creates psychological trauma. And too often people think, oh, I can just push that aside. I don't have to deal with that. What we know about how the brain and body works and how the body keeps score of those traumas, of those violence, unless we attend to that and work at trying to heal it for ourselves and interacting with others in a way that's going to be healing for them, it's just going to stay with us. It's just going to keep going in the cycles over and over again. Most people come to our trainings because they want to be helpful to others. They want to be able to build peace within their own spheres of influence. And then when they come to the training, particularly the STAR training, the four-and-a-half-day STAR training, and then the single-day abbreviated version called Starlight. what they discover is this model that we teach not only helps them help other people, but it helps them in their own healing. Because those of us that are involved in, whether you want to call it peacemaking or peace building, we're putting ourselves in the midst of conflict and in the midst of violence. And we need to take very seriously that we will be subject to secondary trauma. And unless we know that and we take actions to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves it's just going to beat us up. It's going to beat us up and we're not going to be good for anybody. We're going to get burned out. We'll experience compassion fatigue. So it's really important for us to understand that as peacemakers so that we can do our jobs more effectively as well. I don't think I've ever heard it articulated so well that the peacemaker needs to be well aware of the consequences of being the listener, of being the heart for somebody whose heart is so bruised that the pain needs a way to seep out and have a sounding board. I remember after the genocide in Rwanda when I was there and people needed a catharsis, they needed to talk. And I was basically in uh, what they call post-traumatic shock for at least a year afterward. Wow. Thank you for that. Sure. But I actually wanted to ask a question related to that. You are, if I'm hearing you correctly, are referring to the psychological trauma of violence, not only just physical violence, but you are also referring to the trauma of all forms of violence, whether it's economic violence and psychological violence, emotional violence, as well as physical violence. Did I understand that correctly? Yes. I mean, anytime you have injustice, it's, it's violent. 
if you have economic injustice, racial injustice, any kind of injustice where people are not getting at least their basic needs met, if not more than that, so that they can go on to enjoy their life and to be productive and raise their families, that that's violence. And we need to be aware of that and then also be very deliberate about how are we going to take care of ourselves in those situations as peacemakers and how are we going to interact with others in a way that we can carry their burden and be good listeners and help them figure out what's their path towards healing and the possibility of reconciliation? And the responsibility of the peacemaker to be transparent and not be a top-down teacher. <laughs> there is a lot going on in the peacemaking field. Mm -hmm. um, your first professional training is in psychology with an emphasis on trauma. Um, and if I understand things correctly, you had a correlation between trauma and violence. I was wondering, can you relate to us how the healing from the trauma promotes peace? Do you have some stories you could tell about uh, what a difference it actually makes in a community when some of the trauma is resolved? I guess the first thing I would say is that anytime terrible things happen to people, individuals and communities, their peace has been stolen from them. And when people's peace is stolen from them, most people want to build peace back into their lives. So that's really the connection. It's like, what are the strategies? What are the things that we can do every day in our lives? And we can teach other people very simple but powerful strategies to help them build peace back into our, their lives and into our communities. With regard to situations where I've seen this, it's at really all levels. Right before this interview, I was in a local county jail meeting with a defendant who is struggling with mental illness. That's why I'm asked to go and see these defendants. And even though they themselves, in most cases, have committed a crime that has caused some level of harm and violence to others... They also, when I hear their stories, I hear story after story after story of the kind of trauma and violence that has happened to them. And it's unhealed. And when somebody becomes a victim, they get the human need for justice confused with the drive for revenge. It is really easy for a person who has been victimized then to become an aggressor. And when they become an aggressor, that cycle of violence continues because more victimhood happens, more trauma happens, more violence happens, and it just continues on and on and on. I've been doing my forensic work for over 16 years now, doing evaluations for the courts. It's very meaningful work. When I do these evaluations, a number of times I've had an opportunity to meet the judges that I write these reports for. And they thank me because they're not experts in this. I'm there to shed light on what has this person been through and where are they now so the court knows how to move forward. So I feel very good about that work and, and the role that I've been asked to play in that. At the same time, many, many times I hear about cases where I'm like, nobody will be able to get true justice, which is 
uh, human need in the criminal justice system. And one of the things that we teach, that STAR teaches, but then we also teach at the Minnesota Peacebuilding Leadership Institute is about restorative justice. And restorative justice really focuses on meeting the needs of the victim to empower that victim. And in that process, a restorative justice process, it is not unusual if an offender is also involved for them also to find healing. The criminal justice system does not do that. (laughs) What restorative justice does is an opportunity to be able to come together to empower the victim, really respond to what their needs are. And at the same time, again, if the offender is involved, to allow them an opportunity to hear from the victim about their experience and to make things right. And the criminal justice system doesn't do that. That's not the focus of it. It's about a standard and what does the standard say? What does the law say has to happen as a result to punish this person? That's one example of the experiences that I've seen over and over again. Were you searching for more meaning in your life when you before you found the STAR training? It's, it fascinates me. How did you end up there? Or was it a moment of just finding the right thing to and expanding an already perfectly wonderful, gainful life? No. Actually, I did have a, an experience that got me on the path to looking for what ended up being STAR. And what happened is... My training in psychology, rather than being a psychotherapist, originally was as a neuropsychologist at the University of Minnesota. I did a two-year postdoc there. And then I went up to northwestern Wisconsin. This was back in 1997 to work with kids that had gotten themselves in trouble with the legal system, doing very meaningful work with just a wonderful team of people at a residential treatment center and uh, assessment center in northwestern Wisconsin. And while I was working there, this was back in 2001, a tornado went through Siren, Wisconsin, June 18th, 2001. So this was before the tragedy of 9-11. And when that tornado went through Siren, as one of the few mental health professionals in the area, I was asked to volunteer on the Red Cross Mental Health intervention team. And of course, these people, I mean, I didn't live in Siren. I lived up near Spooner and worked in Frederick, but I used to travel through Siren every day back and forth to work. And I saw the devastation. And so when I was asked to volunteer for a couple of days, I said, of course, these are my neighbors. Of course, I want to be helpful. So I showed up on the first day and got in the van with the folks that worked for the Red Cross that did this stuff all the time. And we went out to um, some of the homes of people that had lost everything in that tornado. I remember being on site and just being shocked that I didn't know what to say to people. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to be helpful. And I walked away from that experience going, there's something wrong with this picture. I have all this education. I have all this clinical experience. I'm really good with the team. I can work with the family. But when my neighbors are in need and I don't know what to do, I don't know how to be helpful. And I wasn't like trying to, you know, make it something that was impossible. I was just trying to be a helpful neighbor. And I didn't know how to use the knowledge that I had in that situation. And I was like, something's wrong with this. So that put me on a path 
towards looking for some kind of continuing education that would address that hole in my professional life, my personal and professional life. So then, of course, 9-11 happened, and there were all sorts of trauma trainings and critical incident management, all great trainings. I looked at them all. I read their syllabuses. I was trying to find something, and nothing was nothing was matching. And so I kept looking at those kinds of things over the next number of years. And then finally, in April of 2008, I was down in Wichita, Kansas, visiting my sister. She'd invited me down there to attend a conference called Women in Conversation. One of the reasons she had invited me is because the keynote speaker had been my mentor when I was in graduate school. So I went and my mentor was the keynote, and we it was like old home week when I showed up. And we sat down together during one of the breaks and just started getting caught up. Her name was Carolyn, and I said, you know, Carolyn, you know, I've been doing this work as a neuropsychologist for a while. I'd like to figure out new ways to use my skills and abilities. She had just gotten back from working in an international peace-building organization in Nepal and had been a part of the rescue efforts and recovery efforts in Sri Lanka when the tsunami hit there. And she just looked at me and she goes, Donna, you need to take STAR. And I was like, what STAR? (laughs) And she goes, strategies for trauma awareness and resilience. And I was like, what is this? And she said, it was developed with a $2 million grant from Church World Service out of New York City at the Eastern Mennonite University at their Center for Justice and Peace Building. And she goes, I was one of their first trainers. And you need to take this training because I think it's going to be what you're looking for. So I did what my mentor told me to, and in October of 2008, I went to Virginia to take STAR, just as a community, as a professional development training. But halfway through, I'm like, this is really different than the traditional psychological trauma training, because it brings together not only what happens in the body and the brain when people are traumatized, but it also um, defines trauma very broadly structural trauma, like institutional racism and other kinds of institutional traumas, cultural trauma, historical trauma, secondary trauma, perpetrator-induced traumatic stress or trauma, nonviolent conflict transformation, and principles and strategies and restorative justice to respond to that trauma. It was very, very unique. And I said to them, I bet you there'd be people in Minnesota that would like to take this training and they can't afford to come all the way to Virginia. So I want to keep talking to you about bringing this to Minnesota. So that's kind of what then led me to this. I actually am curious, how does that impacted you personally? We talked earlier about how the peacemaker needs to take care of herself and how the peacemaker, the peace builder, also has to become aware that she too needs to be impacted by the training she gives. What happened to you? Well, I think initially when I proposed the idea of bringing STAR to Minnesota, you know, I had never run an organization. I had never, you know, I'd always been an educator and a clinician. When I worked at the assessment center, when that tornado went through Siren, I was there. I participated in helping really build a structure and an administration that was like a team that I got to be part of. But I never had been, I'd never been in a role as specifically as an administrator. And so, well, it didn't start out with the idea that it was going to be a nonprofit. It started out with, 
I'm going to do one training. I'm going to hire the people from the Center for Justice and Peace Building. I'm going to rent space at Augsburg College. I'm going to, because I wanted, I wanted anybody that wanted to come to the training to have the ability to, regardless of their financial situation. I raised $8,000 with everybody that I knew on the face of the earth that I thought might give us money for this. And I wanted people at that training, uh, I wanted uh, it to be well represented by different groups. And at that first training, we had 25 people, which is a full group, and they represented people from five different religious backgrounds and five different ethnic groups. And at the end of that training, I was excited and exhausted. It was exhilarating. And at the same time, the people that had taken the training were saying, you have to do this again because we all agree on this. We're coming from different religious backgrounds and different ethnic groups, and we all agree on this model. It makes sense to us. I have friends and colleagues that would like to take it. So I was like, what? You know, I, I think for me, in terms of how it's changed me, one of the things that it's really caused me to really dig deep about what are the the skills and gifts and talents that I have that I had never used before as an administrator and fundraiser and promoting this. And so really challenged me to do that, to step out and take risks that I had never done before, you know, that I had never done before. So that's kind of the macro picture of it. Um, and then eventually we continued to do a number of star trainings. They continued to be popular. And then one of my funders said, you know, you can't have the fiscal agent be a church, so you really need to start your own nonprofit with this. And so that's how the Minnesota Peacebuilding Leadership Institute was born out of that um, to become a 501c3 a nonprofit organization. So that's really at the macro level. Now we have multiple different kinds of programs, both free events as well as ones that people pay for. And then also we always want to have scholarships available. So far we've given away over $80,000 in scholarships so that people can attend our, our trainings. But then at a personal level, you know, I've always I've always known that self-care was an important part. It was necessary for anybody in the helping professions. I don't care what you're helping someone else do. You've got to take care of yourself or you're going to burn out. I knew that from personal experience. My um, Between my second and third year of college, I went to live and work in England, and I worked in an organization called the Cocoa Trust that was the first drug rehabilitation center in England. I loved the work. I had an amazing experience. I was um, I was a, a group home staff at a group home of all male drug addicts. They were all older than me, but I learned so much. And at the same time, when I came back from that experience, I was really burnt out. So I knew what that was like. And then my first job out of college, I was actually a social work major in college. My first job out of college was working at a wilderness school for emotionally disturbed girls in Northern Virginia. And I experienced so much trauma there because, frankly, the organization was not run well. I got beat up numerous times. I mean, basically, this was a, an alternative to kids' prison for these girls. They had all had histories of trauma, but the cycle was just playing itself out. I left that job after nine months. I was really fried. <laughs> emotionally, psychologically, mentally. So when I found 
the star model, I was so impressed with it. And I thought, you know, I wish I would have had this. I wish I would have had this model when I had been in those jobs. And if somebody had sent me to a star training so I could learn this, so I could then not only be more effective in the people that I worked with and was caring for, but also in taking care of myself. Because this model also talks, I mean, it's, it's really about resilience. And what, do, what are the building blocks, what are the self-care building blocks so that we can remain resilient? Because of the work that I do teaching STAR and our other trainings, it's like I have a daily, what I call my resilience rhythm of what I do on a daily basis to take care of myself. What do I do on a weekly basis to take care of myself? And, and what's the big picture so that I can continue doing this work? And then also to be able to speak, you know, when people come and they talk about the stressors that they're having, I'm saying, what are you doing to take care of yourself? Let's really take a look at that. Because if you don't do that, you know, you're going to be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You're not going to be able to do this kind of work with the compassion that you probably started out doing it. That's really the heart of it. Well, you have had a fascinating journey, and you've started from scratch, an amazing process at a very short period of time, 2008 to 2017. That's nine years. You understand you have gone from, and at the same time, held a full-time job. You've become an activist. You've created an, your own nonprofit. You've learned how to fundraise. You've become a public speaker. You've been... <laughs> become quite an amazing pillar of our society. You're willing to discuss maybe a mistake or two you might have made, something you might have done differently, maybe a moment of insight you've had. I make mistakes all the time. (laughs) We have one other employee right now, our communications coordinator. She actually just came on board and she's wonderful. And I tell her all the time that Most of what we've done in the last seven and a half years has not been perfect. And look what's happened. Look what's happened. We haven't, the messages we sent out, we've had times, you know, most of our trainings have happened, and I think that's because people are hungry for this information. Like, for instance, we have a a fundraiser. The last four years, we've put on a fundraiser in collaboration with Luna Bars. Are you familiar with Luna Bars? Luna Bars are a sports bar that are specifically um, developed for women. So it's a nationally known corporation, and they produce a women's film festival that then they offer to nonprofits around the country to put on as a fundraiser. This is year four. We're going on to year five. It's been very successful here in Minneapolis. Well, we've tried it in other places, and it hasn't happened. For some reason, it just hadn't happened. You know, those are disappointments. Okay, so something didn't work. Yeah, does it sting? Absolutely. But how can we regroup? How can we learn from what didn't work? And how can we figure out how to move forward? I have no illusions that all people think that peacemaking or peacebuilding is a good thing. Most people would say, well, everybody wants peace. Well, not everybody does. You know, there are people that don't. I know I've, when I've given presentations sometime and I'm talking to people about how people get the human need for justice and revenge confused, I've had people just come right up to me and go, yeah, but I like revenge. I like the way it feels. And I say to them, and that's a choice you get to make. Now you know 
that's an option. It's not the way it has to be. You know, I get down like everybody else that things aren't better and we're not moving ahead faster, but I don't want to stay there. I don't want to stay there because it's not a fun place to be. I'm always, how can we move forward to get this message out and to do this as long as people want us to do it? So no, things have not gone perfectly. It. I wish there was a ton more collaborations between groups that are doing similar things. Doesn't always happen. And I don't know why, but I'm not going to spend my time worrying about that. I'm going to bless people wherever they are and move on. Before we go on to the last piece of this, uh, would you be willing to share one of you, something that sticks out for you as one of the best stories of the last seven years? Last nine years, I guess, is probably a better way of putting it. Something maybe about when you knew you were in the right place and doing the right thing and you were absolutely in the right moment. I'll go with the most recent training that I did, and that was on Friday. I was asked to speak with a group of about close to 25 educators and mental health care providers about restorative justice. They wanted they asked me to do a two-hour training for the staff of a large mental health organization here in the Twin Cities. Some of these people had had a little bit of experience um, and knowledge about restorative justice, but most of them had not. So it was an opportunity for me to teach them about restorative justice, but then the way that I teach it is in a very experiential kind of, um, it's a combination of some lecture, but then having people do experiential activities and listen to videos of people's experience in restorative justice, and then think about their own situations and how these principles apply. And the energy in the room was really palpable because for most people, this was a real new concept. Even the idea that justice and fairness are a basic human need was a new idea for many of the people in that room. And I really am all about reclaiming that word justice. I don't want the criminal justice system to own it the way they have. It belongs to all of us. It was like the light bulbs going on over their heads as we're talking about this and they're asking questions and talking about how this applies, both at the individual face-to-face level as well as what we call creative restorative justice. And the example that I give is in the state of Minnesota, most people know who Jacob Wetterling is and Patty Wetterling is. I know Patty and we've talked about how this model fits the path that she and her family have worked. And the kind of power that has happened as a result of their decisions to move forward in their healing that we've all benefited from because of the Jacob Wetterling Resource Center and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, that all came out of Patty and her family's desire to move forward and to heal and to take the tragedy of their experience to move forward and to make it better for our whole community. People in the room were like, oh my goodness, we could all do this. We could all do this. We can do this as individuals, but we, when we get together, it's even more powerful. Anytime I do a training or a presentation and I see those light bulbs and the enthusiasm, it's like, yeah. Our vision is making Minnesota the peace-building power state for all. So that's what we're on our way to do. 
It's the next question, actually. <laughs> what do you see yourself doing in the peacemaking future? Maybe in 10 years or maybe again in 25? 10 years. Wow. Um, well, in 10 years' time, if this nonprofit is still growing, somebody else is going to be running it. What I like doing is I love the teaching. I mean, I like the administration. I have lots of ideas, creative ideas for program development, uh, different kinds of trainings that I want to offer to the community. I'd like to be doing that kind of work. And I'd like somebody else to be doing the fundraising and administration and somebody who really loves that. <laughs> I mean, I've enjoyed it. And, and there are absolutely times that I've really loved it. And at the same time, you know, we're all getting older. And we're going to do this together. And I want somebody who's younger with the energy, with the peace building passion to say, let me walk alongside you, Donna, and let's do this together for a while. And then let me take over and I'll be really ready to let that happen. So in 10 years, definitely that will be, that will have happened. I, I guarantee that. <laughs> what does the Minnesota Peace Building Leadership Institute, going? what is it going to look like in 25 years? One of the things that I recently was asked to do was to do an organizational assessment of an organization's skills and knowledge and capabilities around being trauma-informed, resilient-oriented, and restorative justice-focused. And this was for a nonprofit organization, social service organization, that works with kids and families. They talked to me about doing training with all their staff. And then wisely, they said, you know, before you do the training, would you do an assessment of our organization, both in those three areas, trauma-informed, resilience-oriented, and restorative justice focus, but would you also do a more general assessment to find out what is it that we're doing that's working? What do our staff think about how we're doing it? And what are ways that we can improve? So I've been working on that for probably about six months, and I just finished the final assessment piece. I love it when we have individuals from different organizations come to our trainings, particularly when we have two or three people from the same organization, because I believe they're going to be able to go back and have more of an impact together than if just an individual person comes. And I also see the power of the organization, that if you have an organization that says from the ground up, we want to embed these principles and strategies and practices into the fabric of our organization, that that can have the organizational system itself moving in that trajectory, in what I would consider a peace-building trajectory, can have so much more power. We're seeing this in schools that are instituting restorative justice from the ground up. As the Peacebuilding Institute, Minnesota Peacebuilding Institute moves forward, I want to continue to offer both trainings for individuals to come to or to do contract with groups that want us to do it, like we have been doing for the last number of years. But I also see that we're going to be moving in the direction of being asked to do these assessments with organizations. And then as a result of that assessment, then do training based on the assessment results and then the third piece is doing implementation. So when you have organizations that are asking us to come in and do that, the kind of potential is, I just think it's really powerful for peace building to grow within an organization from the inside out.
We've been listening to Dr. Donna Minter, and thank you very much for joining us. Well, thanks for asking me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Everyday Nonviolence, extraordinary people speaking truth to power. To learn more about Friends for a Nonviolent World and the work that we do, please visit our website, fnvw.org, or give us a call at 651-917-0383.